Don't forget to take your higher power with you. For our 100th episode, John Red joins us to share his story. He talks about anxiety, thyroid cancer, and addiction. He talks about the power of owning your own story, morning meditation and making your bed, and connecting with your higher power. If you walk through the fear, the fear no longer has the power. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Kurt and I are super excited to talk with John Red today. Um, he first started struggling with addiction in his teen years and went to his first residential treatment program at the age of 19. After treatment, John completed his Bachelor's of Art degree in psychology from the University of Utah. He also um, has his graduate in the University of Utah's Graduate School of Social Work, Alcohol and Drug Abuse Treatment Training Programs. I know John is incredibly passionate about recovery and helping people, and we are super excited to have him here today. Thanks for coming, John. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. It's, uh, it's incredible. Now, we're friends, and you know we get to work together every now and then, and so it's, it's more fun to be, and we're face-to-face, which a lot yes. of times when we record, we're not face-to-face. So it's, it's fun today to have you here and to know the work, some of the work that you've done and some of the people that you've served. Um, and that you work with because you're making a difference, a huge footprint in the industry with all the work that you're doing that I can't even begin to touch on. And, but maybe because our listeners don't know you as well as we do, maybe it would be good to start with kind of your recovery story and how you ended up in this industry. Yeah, kind of the recovery story and where it all began. Um, I, and I don't know how to explain this without giving some context behind it. So when I was... I'm the oldest of six kids. There are five boys in a row and a girl. Um, I was raised mainly in Utah, um, but I was always a, I just remember always having this kind of underlying anxiety about me, just never really feeling like I was comfortable. I, like kind of my whole life, I don't even know how to explain it. Like just this, somebody once told me I had a generalized anxiety disorder longer than, than I've known and it, I would agree with that. And so I, in part of the way I explain that is at the age of six, my parents moved us to France. And so we moved to France for two years. All I knew how to say when we moved there was Je m'appelle, which is my name is, and then Jonathan, Jonathan. Um, and I was put in French schools. And you, you would assume not knowing how to ask where the bathroom was or communicate with the kids 
that, that would cause just such a level of anxiety, and it did, but it wasn't anything different than what I was used to experiencing. And so what happened in my life is I, my parents are amazing. I have, um, I've got some brothers and a sister that it, they're incredible. And um, I, we moved back to Utah when I was eight and was more or less raised in Farmington. Um, I was raised in a household that was very religious. Um, I always knew what the rules were and I always knew how important those rules were. And was just, I felt like I was always just kind of bumping into this world. And I had a friend come over when I was 14 years old and my dad had just been called to be the bishop um, of the neighborhood. And so if that gives you some context, he, um, for those of you who may not be LDS who are listening, what, what it means is that he just got called to kind of a position of authority um, and was kind of the director locally of what the church was. And so, and being raised in a really religious household, my, my friend came over at 14 and he brought over some Smirnoff mini bottles and I had never drank before. And um, I drank three of those mini bottles and he drank three of those mini bottles and we went out in the neighborhood and um, what happened to me at that time almost felt magical. Like I, I suddenly could make eye contact with girls. I thought I was funny. I thought the people around me thought I was funny. And I thought, man, I figured out how, pe- how others fit into this world. And I had this weird thing happen at the time, which I thought, man, this might also be the thing that's taken me to hell, but um, I'm going to stay with it because I, I don't know how else, how else I'm going to function. And so I started this whole process being really sneaky and manipulative, um, being dishonest and just started the process of drinking and using drugs. And it, it was from 14 up until when you read the initial bio, I, I went to treatment when I was 19 years old, and I can give you some context around that if you'd like. Yeah, give us a little context about treatment and, and what that looked like. And kind of what happened. So, yeah. I, so in my life, and I, um, I was um, drinking and using kind of on weekends, and then it gradually progressed to a lot more than that. Um, I was able to maintain good grades and I maintained a job. And so what it did is it kept some of the questions off my back a little bit and I, and it allowed me just to kind of go through and function. Um, it was, I went to early college when I was a senior in high school. So I went up to Weber State University and completed my freshman year of college. I didn't do very well, but I, I enjoyed the atmosphere. Um, Half the classes I had to retake, which is pretty bad, but I, I was not focused on school at that time. And I, I liked that because I could smoke weed and I could drink and I could do other things and I didn't have to worry about being um, at school. And then I was also kind of a ski bum. So I, I, you could do college in two or three days a week instead of the five days a week, which allowed me to ski other days and allowed me to work in the evenings. Um, and right after graduation... Um, right after like my senior graduation, um, I left home and I moved down to Salt Lake with some friends and I thought I had, I thought I'd hit the jackpot. Like I had no money, but we could keep beer in the fridge. Like I, I had no, no one to answer to, um, and life was good. And what that ended up becoming for me is just this spiral of, 
the accessibility um, of drugs and everything that was going on um, got to a point in my life where it just started becoming out of control. Um, and I had a girlfriend at the time and, well, a couple, and the, the one that I was dating seriously, um, she ended up getting pregnant. And she called me and she said, look, we need to get this taken care of and I need you to pay for half of it. And so I didn't have any money and I didn't know what to do. I've actually never said this on a podcast. I'm kind of shocked I'm saying this now, but... Um, so, so I went and I drained my missionary account that my parents set up for me. And I paid um, for part of an abortion. And i not making a... I want to be clear about something. I'm not saying pro-life or anything along those lines. This is my experience. Um, this is like the best decisions I could make at 18 um, with where I was at. And... After that happened, um, I did not know how to cope. I did not know how to function in this world. Um, it was within months of that that I had a needle in my arm and I was shooting up heroin and cocaine on a daily basis. I called my parents and I remember specifically asking my mom and just saying, Mom, I need help. And she said, okay, we're here for you. And I got put into a detox and then I went to treatment at 19 years old. And while I was in treatment, this remarkable thing happened for me, which was I really felt like I was able to connect with people that I hadn't been able to connect with before. Like, people actually understood me. Um, it kind of, like, I had always felt like I was the black sheep, and suddenly what had happened is I had this whole herd of other black sheep um, that, I could, that I could relate to. And so after treatment, I... I felt like this was going to be what my life was to become. So I went home and I went got a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Utah. I went and attended the graduate school of social work to become what was then a licensed substance abuse counselor, which is now a SUDC, um, and got all the education for that. Um, and my life was going really well. And I ended up getting married. Um, I'm still married to the same woman this day. She's she's pretty amazing. And um, we started a family. And in starting the family, um, I realized that I wanted to do probably something else with my life, that I'd have to figure out how to provide for a family and all these other things, and thought I needed more education. So I went to um, BYU and went and got an MBA. Um, and so I, those of you who are listening, you'll probably realize soon the more you hear my story is that I'm, one of the things this tells me, it, my education actually tells me two things. One, I'm way overeducated for my level of intelligence. I'm not that smart of a guy, but I seem to have just done school well, and I don't know how that worked for me, but I pulled it off. And the, the other thing, in looking back at my life, I realized that I was somebody who was run by fear, like by anxiety and um, for me, school was safe. So I stayed where I was safe. Um, so I went and I finished with the MBA. Um, I had just gotten a new job. This, this is, to give you context, this is 2002 when I graduated. Um, shortly after graduation, I, I got a new job. I 
Um, we were moving from Farmington um, down to Las Vegas, Nevada, and my wife and I um, had started a family. So we had a, my oldest, he was getting ready to turn two, and then my wife was pregnant with our twins. And I thought that my life was going really well. Um, I thought it was taking the course in the direction that I wanted it to go. And um, I can remember just how excited I was to, for everything that was coming our way. And so before we moved down to Las Vegas, um, I went and met with the family doctor and went to get a checkup. And it, I got a phone call from him. And I'll, I'll never forget this day. It was um, St. Patrick's Day of 2003. And we were selling the home that we were living in. I was two or three weeks in this new job with Johnson & Johnson. Um, we were getting ready to move down to Las Vegas. And he called me and it was 5.45 at night and I was out in front of the house. And he said, John, we got your test results back. And he said, they came back and they're suspicious. And I remember I remember asking him what suspicious meant. And he said, John, we, you have cancer. And I need, I'm clearing my schedule tomorrow morning and I need you to come in so we can talk about it. And so I remember telling my wife and I remember being pretty panicked and I, I cleared my schedule and I went in the next morning and I said, okay, um, what, what are we looking at here? And what... Um, he told me, he said, John, you have thyroid cancer and it's metastasized um, throughout your lymph nodes. And I asked him the prognosis on it and he said, well, it's stage four. And he said, you know, in, in these scenarios, worst case scenario, I give you six months. And I was in the doctor's office for about another 10 minutes after that. And I, I do not remember a thing he said after six months. I remember thinking, you know, who, who's going to raise my son? Um, I'm, I'm never going to see these twins grow up. And I remember just being so panicked, um, but not knowing how to deal with it, not knowing how to address it. And I knew my wife was panicked as well, and I remember going home and my wife asking me what the doctor had said. And, um, I thought I was doing the right thing because I didn't want to scare her. So I just said, you know, he's, he says I've got to have surgery, but I th he thinks we'll make it through. And I, but in my mind, I just kept thinking, man, I'm, I'm not going to make it. And so a, a couple days later, I went in for surgery. And the first surgery, I was supposed to be in the hospital um, for two days. That was the scheduled time. And I was in the hospital over a week. Um, the surgery didn't go very well. They severed a branch of my spinal accessory nerve, and I ended up being in a lot of pain. And I was given Oxycontin. Um, and this was 2003, and I, I, um, I've looked back on this a lot lately in the past 18 years, and I've tried to figure out how much pain I was in. And I have no idea. Because I remember just this feeling of angst that I had that every time I took a pill, that went away. And I had the, kept the job and I, I was high functioning um, with the job or at least high enough functioning to keep the job. Um, and 
I had a couple more surgeries. So I had another surgery at the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Utah. And then in 2007, um, I went back to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for my last surgery. And I remember being at the Mayo Clinic and just kind of sensing that there might be hope for this. Um, and this whole time in my mind, I was just thinking, okay, you know, we're, we're just doing this, but I'm going to be dead here soon. And going through the rounds of treatment and um, everything else that was happening. And I remember after the last surgery that I had um, at the Mayo Clinic, um, they did the tests and the doctor came back and the doctor said, John, I have um, great news for you. He says, we got it all and you're cancer free. And, you know, I think for a normal person, you would assume that's great news. And for me, all I could think is, now what am I going to do with my life? I was hooked on pills. Um, I was drinking a bottle of alcohol and I had to fall asleep. And I was in shambles. And I thought, man, there's, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then this thought came to me that, John, you... You attended a master's program in substance use. Pull yourself out of it. And um, there are plenty of stories of what happened over the next 10 years, but for 10 years I put every little bit of self-knowledge and understanding that I had to pull myself out of it. And what happened in my life is that um, all the jobs that were so important to me I lost. I I'd gotten bad enough that my parents and my in-laws had gotten together um, a couple years before I got sober and they were trying to figure out if they could put me on permanent disability because they never thought I'd be able to hold a job. They never thought I'd be able to be part of society again. And it's tough to say this, but deep down I felt they might be right. I didn't know what the problem was. I didn't know how much of it linked to what I was taking versus how much of it linked to cancer versus how much of it linked to... Like, every, every little aspect of my life was a complete mess. And so what, what happened there is I lost all the jobs um, and everything just... It just continued to fall apart, like time after time after time. Um, no matter how much I tried to help it or work on it or get a new job or do something else, um, it just, I'd end up exploding it all. And it was the summer of 2017, and I'll, I'll take you to um, that summer. Um, so for 10 years, I finally got to a point where I was no longer in medical cells. Um, I felt like my reputation had been so ruined there. I... Um, and I was, we were going on a family vacation and my, my in-laws had given us a trip to Newport Beach and they were taking um, my wife's side of the family, all of her siblings, we were all going down to Newport Beach for the summer or for a week or two. And I, I love Newport Beach. Um, I was really excited to go. I remember being nervous about going, thinking, man, I don't want to get sick if I run out of pills or if I run out of something, like, what's going to happen? And it was it was two weeks before 
this vacation that my wife came to me and pulled me aside, or not two weeks, I'm sorry, two days before the vacation, my wife came to me and pulled me aside and let me know that um, I wasn't going. And I tell people that um, I got uninvited on this trip. And my wife's, um, my wife's heard me tell this story enough times that she finally pulled me aside a couple weeks, or a, maybe it was two years ago. I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like that long ago. And she pulled me aside and said, you know what, John, you, you keep thinking you were uninvited. And she said, I got to tell you, you were never invited to start with. You just didn't know it. And, and you know what? That, that's really accurate, actually. <laughs> I, I always thought that I had been uninvited, but uh, I think the vacation was planned. And it, I, I was never part of the plans. I just kind of assumed that I was in on it. Um, and so what happened um, is I was home and I... I was in a very dark place. Um, and it was one of those places where life was just so heavy. I, I remember waking up in the morning thinking, man, how am I going to survive today? And, and life had never been that heavy before. And I'd wake up the next morning and it was worse. And I didn't know how to get out of that place. And so I did what at the time for me was the most novel thing I could do, which was um, I went through the entire house and I locked all the doors. And I, I have no idea why I did that because people didn't come over to visit me. Um, I was a guy who kind of sucked the life out of you if you came around me. So it's not like somebody showed up and said, hey, John, let's watch the game together. I, I probably would have sent them away anyways if somebody had tried. And um, I, I went down to a bedroom in the basement and I went in and actually locked that door. Um, and I sat on the bed and the only thing I could do was, that I could think of was it, I, I had to ask for help. And so I, I said the most sincere prayer I've ever said in my life which was simply caught, if there's a way out of this, please help me. And, and what happened in my life within two days of that prayer, um, the job that I was trying to hold on to told me not to come back into the office anymore. Um, when my wife came home from Newport, she had this resolve on her face that I'd never seen. And she just said, man, I... I don't care anymore if we stay married or get divorced, you have to go. My kids, I had, um, I've got four kids um, and I couldn't even get them to make eye contact with me. And so I went up to my, I went up to my parents' house and asked them for help. And they said, we're willing to help you, but we're not gonna help you your way. And it was just within a couple of days of that, I had an opportunity to go to residential treatment. And looking back at my life today, I realized that that prayer was answered the exact way it had to be answered for me to get help. If I would have had a job that I thought I could hold on to, I wouldn't have gone for treatment. If I felt like my wife would have allowed me to stay home, I would not have gone in for treatment. Um, if my parents would have saved me or rescued me, um, I wouldn't have gone for treatment. And 
what happened is I got this belief today, and my belief is this, that sometimes when we feel like our world is falling apart, it's God's way of bringing it together. But when we're in the middle of it, we can't see it. And I was in the middle of it and I couldn't see it. I would have told you everything that was important to me in my life had fallen apart that day or that week as, as all these events were unfolding. Um, and what happened is, I, so I went into treatment on August 24th of 2017 and um, that, that's a day I'll be forever grateful for. And I went in and I went in and I, I remember talking to the therapist there and explaining my education and all these things that I knew about this disease. And um, I remember the therapist looking at me just right in the eyes and, and she said to me, you know what you're gonna have to do, John? And I said, man, I, I, I wanna get well, what, what am I gonna have to do? And she goes, she looked at me, I hope I can say this on the podcast, but she goes, John, you're going to have to forget all that bullshit you think you know because none of it kept you sober. And um, I was like, ooh, like that stung and it hurt, but I realized that she was right. And I went in with this open mind and I went in um, with a willingness to try and do something different. And so whatever suggestions I was given, I, it's not like I just liked the idea, but I did it. Um, and I went to a place and I was real grateful that I went to a place that involved the 12 steps and in the 12 step program when you're looking at how it works and we, how it works was something I heard every day it's the first three pages of chapter 5 and the first paragraph of that talks about um, the first thing that we need to do and it says that you need to um, be constitutionally capable of being honest with yourself. You need to grasp and develop a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. And then it says you need to have the capacity to be honest. And I was a guy who was so full of crap that I didn't think honesty was possible for me. I was like, if, like on the way here today, if, if I would have stopped and eaten and I would have gone to maybe McDonald's and Kurt asked me if I would eaten and I knew Kurt liked Chick-fil-A. I would have told Kurt I went to Chick-fil-A. Like that's, like even if the truth had worked, somehow I'd still give people a lie. And I, I don't know why I did that, but it was, it was so embedded in me. And I went there and I knew I had to start trying to figure out how to get honest. And I'm gonna tell you like that, that terrified me. Um, it terrified me to think that people know who I am, and when they knew who I was, when they knew who I, who I was, that then they wouldn't really like me. Um, where it was easier for me, it protected me um, by not giving people the truth. And so, at this program, I started doing something else too, which was, um, I started praying, and I started I started my day by making my bed and by asking for help. And I started connecting. And that um, was uncomfortable for me. Uh, but what I found is that that was one of the things that I, I still do that today, I do that to this very morning. 
I, um, I make my bed and I hit my knees. And I get so much peace from a connection with something bigger than me. And I knew I needed help with this, so I started asking for help, to be honest. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing for me. Like, I think it's something that applies more to addicts and alcoholics. Like, my dad is not an addict and alcoholic, and I don't believe he's ever hit his knees in the morning saying, hey, can you help me be honest today? Like, my dad just, he's that way. Like, that's just him. Um, whereas some of these things that other people can do, I'm somebody who needs help with it. So I went in this program, and um, I was in there on my 20-year wedding anniversary. And I remember just feeling so much pity and shame that I was, that I had to be in treatment on my 20-year wedding anniversary. And what I, it was just, I was just starting to realize the things that I would put my wife and family through. And the 20-year wedding anniversary was the first night that my wife came in for couples processing session. So if anybody's wondering how to spend a 20, um, that's, it's not on the list. Um, or at least I wouldn't put it on the list. Granted, when she came in, um, my wife told me it was the best anniversary gift um, that I'd ever given her. And we had a couple's session that night and we were sitting there talking and I remember the counselor looked at my wife Sonny and said Sonny what what is it you want to see out of John and what Sonny said is I want him never to use drugs I want him never to relapse again and this counselor looked at her and laughed um, kind of like not mockingly but just laughed to himself and said you know what John can't promise that but what John can promise is that he'll be honest and transparent going forward. And if he's honest and transparent, you will see a relapse long before it ever happens. Um, and I believe that there are times that you hear something and that there are times that you actually feel it. And when he said it, I felt it. Like I knew that's what I needed to do. So I, I, I made that promise right then and there. And what's happened um, is we went through the couples processing session and I thought, man, this went remarkably well. Like, this is good. And I, I walked my wife to the front door um, and when we got to the front door, my wife asked, she looked at me and she said, it looks like something's changed with you. She goes, I can tell you're trying to be honest. I said, I'm trying. I said, I don't, I don't know how well I'm doing, but I'm trying. And she asked me some tough questions. And um, I remember saying a little prayer in my head and I got honest with my wife about And um, there were two things that happened at that moment. One is I watched my wife at 20 years drive away and I never thought I'd see her again. And the other thing that happened was this backpack that I felt like I'd been carrying around that must have been 200 pounds I finally got to set down. And so I, I'm a big believer in kind of the power of honesty. I think there's, I think truth itself has a spiritual component to it. And I thought at that moment there might be a way for me to get sober. And so I kept going through the program and eventually I got out of the program. Um, I think I was in there 48 days. Um, and I remember the counselor 
And mind you, I was feeling better now than I'd felt since 03. Like everything was out of my system. I finally felt like I could relax. I finally felt like I was like I was ready to take the world on again. And the therapist said, John, if you want to stay sober, I need you to go get a job at Costco or Walmart. And, and I thought this guy was nuts. I thought, man, I've got these degrees and I'm going back into medical cells and it's time for me to rebuild my life financially. Like I went in there with not a cent to my name, like retirement, you name it, it was gone. And um, he said, no, John, he goes, I don't think you're hearing me. He said, if you want to stay sober, you're going to go get one of these jobs. And I realized what he meant was that I needed a job where I could show up, where I could stay in the day, where I could put in an honest day's work. Um, and so when I left the residential treatment center, um, within two days of that, I had a job at Costco. And I remember um, going into Costco and I remember just being so excited for that job um, because I actually had a place that wanted me to work there. And, and I hadn't had that in a couple of years and they scheduled me um, and it was this seasonal job where they just kind of pick your count, like your schedule. You don't get to decide whether you get nights off or, or how that's going to look. And um, they had scheduled me to, to work during the nights of IOP. And I thought, to, which is, stands for intensive outpatient. So it's the aftercare after residential. And I thought, man, this is great. Now I don't have to go to IOP because the rehab's the one that told me to get this job. So I remember going in and meeting with the therapist and saying, okay, well, I'm not going to make it every Thursday night and I'm probably not going to make it Tuesday nights. And the guy looked at me and said, you know what, John, you are um, going to have to either quit the job or you're going to have to go talk to him and tell him you need these nights off. And I just remember all this fear and angst that was coming up. And I went into Costco and I told him that I needed a couple nights a week just not to be scheduled. And they had me meet with the general manager of Costco. And I, to tell you, I was afraid to just undersell it. Like I was just terrified of, of how this was going to go. Um, and I went in there and um, her name was Sandy. And Sandy looked at me and Sandy said, you know, we never give new people nights off. She goes, but I understand you need some nights off. What's going on? And it, and it wasn't with a smile. It was just really direct and curt. And I remember looking at Sandy. Um, I said, you know, Sandy, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm attending these classes so that I can get well. I said, I'm trying to learn how to be an employee and a father. So it would really help me if I could have these nights off. And she got the biggest smile and she came up from around her desk and gave me a hug um, and told me she would never schedule me those nights. And the thing that she said to me, she said, a lot of people come in, but nobody's ever honest with me. And she said, you were honest. And I, um, what happened for me was I just realized that I could start learning how to own my story and approach this world. I, um, 
the I worked at the Costco in Battleville, which was a beautiful thing for me because I didn't have a car. Um, we had one family car and three drivers. And believe me, I was like the lowest one on the totem pole there. So I was not the one that the car was reserved for, rightly so. And um, the Costco in Bountiful was three blocks away from the recovery club. So I knew that I could always attend a noon AA meeting. Um, if they worked me in the morning or if they worked me at night, it was always before or after the meeting. Um, and I could just walk up there and have a place to sit where I'd be safe. And what Costco did for me, the lessons I learned from Costco were just huge. Um, not a morning person. Some people are. Some people can get up at 3 in the morning and just bounce out of bed fresh as a daisy. If, for me, if I'm up before 7.30, like, it's, it's a struggle. I'm not, I'm not a morning person. And um, Costco kept me on full-time. They brought me on full-time after the seasonal ended, and they, they put me on a morning shift, um, where most mornings I had to be there at 4 a.m. And I am the type of person that if you put something on a calendar and show me six months of me waking up at 4 a.m., I'm just not showing up day one, because I know it's impossible, um, especially for me. Um, but what happened was is my alarm would go off every morning at 3.03 a.m. Um, and I'd just simply look at the phone, I'd turn the alarm off, and I'd think, you know what, John, you can just do this today. Just show up today. And um, Costco taught me how to live um, one day at a time, to take what's in the moment and to address that. Um, Costco, I, I had another experience at Costco as I was trying to rebuild my life. And um, I was going up to the club and I was working with a sponsor. And the sponsor I had had something really unique that he always said to me, which was, John, don't forget to take your higher power with you. And, I, and that was a novel concept for me because I kind of just had always been somebody like, I felt like I'd been raised in a way to, that you check in in the morning, you check out at night, um, and then what you do in between is just kind of your own business. Um, but the thought to take a higher power with me was new. And so I um, remember I was leaving Costco one morning, and it was like 10.45, and I was getting ready to walk up to the club, and I was with all the guys that I had worked the morning shift with, all the guys and gals, and they were, they were my friends. And I remember ordering a hot dog and a drink. And I remember just being really hungry, and I thought, well, you know, I'll get a hot dog and I'll go up to the meeting. Uh, hot dogs and a drink at Costco is $1.62, or at least it was then. Um, and I ordered the hot dog and drink, and I went to pay for it, and all, all we had was a debit card. Um, and I remember sliding my debit card in, and I remember... Um, the guy looking at me from across the counter and he said, you know what, John, you, it tells me you have insufficient funds. And I remember feeling so little and so insignificant. And I knew that all the people around me were thinking, you know what, John can't even afford a hot dog. And I put my backpack over my shoulder and I started walking out the front door. Um, and the thought came to me, uh, 
John, take your higher power with you. I remember just saying this little prayer in my head, like, man, I, I could really use some help right now. And I started walking up to the club, and the most magical thing happened. I, I'd crossed the street, and suddenly there were three birds singing in a tree um, that I could hear. And I looked up at the mountains, and I, I don't think the mountains had ever been so beautiful. And the sky was bluer than I ever remember seeing it. And I thought to myself, man, you have a chance to be sober today. And before this process started for me, I would have given anything for a chance to be sober one day. And I was getting ready to throw all this progress away over a hot dog, if you can believe that, even a Costco hot dog. like. And um, what I found is that there was a way for me to tap into a level of peace and a level of, of serenity that I'd never had before in my life. Um, and a lot of that is just through having some type of spiritual experience. And so I, I remember talking with my, my sponsor initially and explaining to him, I, part of my education, I'd actually gone to BYU Jerusalem and done five, six months, five months there. And we studied Judaism and Islam and Christianity. And um, my sponsor asked me at one time what God was. And I, I thought, man, I'm gonna wow this guy. I'm gonna explain to him what God is and we're gonna check that box and I'm gonna get my gold star and he's gonna be super impressed. And I did that and um, he was not impressed at all. Um, he looked at me and he said, John, one thing that's clear to me is that you don't know shit about God. Um, and he said, so what I need you to do is when you're looking at these steps, I need you to, instead of step three, which says made a decision, turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him, he said, I need you to change that to made a decision, turn my will and life over the care of God as I don't understand him. And he said, whether you understand God or not is not important. He said, what's important is that you're willing to seek. He goes, be a seeker. He goes, try to bring this into your life. And I was, just so willing to do what, what I was asked to do that I just started seeking. Um, and what happened is I ended up getting this peace and this, this power flowing into my life that I didn't understand what it was, but today I know that that is God. Um, I'll kind of tie up the Costco thing. I, every time I share my story or I do a podcast, it's important to me. This is almost part of my amends that I, that I get to tell people about the best night of my life. And so I'll tell you what happened. Um, I had gotten sober in August. Um, my youngest son had his birthday at the end of October. His birthday's actually the 30th, so it's tomorrow, but it's, um, and I was sober for it. And then um, I was sober for Thanksgiving. I got to be sober for Christmas. I was sober on my wife's birthday. I was sober on my oldest son's birthday. I was sober on my birthday. And I had one holiday left, and that was the twins. And their birthday was the very end of May. And 
um, they wanted to have a birthday party at um, Classic Skate. And some of us know Classic Skate. If you don't know what Classic Skate is, it's like a, it's like Chuck E. Cheese does a roller skating rink. It's kind of the way I explain it. It's like just, it's a roller skating rink for little kids with a lot of arcades and a lot of things going on. And it is just chaotic. And for me, um, Classic Skate kind of sounds like my version of hell, actually. Well, actually, I think hell sounds funner than classic skate. Like, some people love classic skate. I'm just not a classic skate guy. And so the twins wanted to go to classic skate. And I remember um, I was still working at Costco at the time, and I didn't have um, have money to buy them gifts. And... And all I could afford was a couple boxes of Little Caesars pizza. I remember pulling up thinking, man, this is miserable. I can't believe this is, this is miserable. And then that thought came to me again, which is, John, take your higher power with you. And I remember sitting in the car before walking in and just saying a prayer like, you know, help, please help me be a part of this evening. Please help me get through this and be okay. And I, I went in and somehow this thought dawned on me as I was walking through the door that like maybe like that night wasn't about me, which is like a really novel thought for a guy like me because, you know, I, I have a tendency at times to be so self-centered. I think everything's about me. Um, and I went in and I walked through the door and I put on some roller skates. Um, and I had the biggest smile on my face. And I went around the rink with my, with my family and their friends. And I remember getting home that night thinking, man, this night is, this night was pretty cool. And um, as I was going to bed, my son Charlie comes into the room and, and Charlie says, dad, thank you. He said, that, that's the best birthday I've ever had. And then um, about 30 minutes after that, my daughter Molly comes into the room. And Molly tells me the same thing. And I, I had always, in the past, tried to buy them something big and grand and nice to let them know I loved them. And, and it wasn't an option for me that year. So all I could do was show up. And I showed up. And these twins came to me and told me it was the best birthday they ever had. And, I, and I'll tell you, the relevance of this dawned on me when I was in bed that night. And this is why it is so significant. Is that in my mind, I never thought I'd see him turn one. And when they turned 15, it was the first time their dad had ever been sober on their birthday. And I couldn't believe I got the opportunity to do that. Um, it, and what I've been able to do with my family is develop a, an amazing relationship. And the rela relationship... Um, 
had to start with me showing up. And now they know that, I'm, that I will show up, that if I tell them I'm gonna do something, I do it. Um, my, my kids know how important they are to me because I tell them. They, they never have to guess if their dad loves them. Where I think in the past they used to have to guess. So I, I tell them I love them and then I follow it up with action. And so I, I we are um, kind of just, we're still in 2018 at this point. Um, and what happened shortly after my kid's birthday is I got a, sorry, I got a phone call and I got an opportunity to go work in recovery. And so I got a call from a place that told me they would like me to work there and help me work in admissions and be community outreach. And um, and it was the place that I went through treatment. And I went there and I started doing that. And um, I started trying to help people. And I feel like my life has been able to come full circle um, from what I started my education with at the age of 19, from where I was going and um, all the experiences that I've had in it. I mean, it, when I tell you it was hell at the end, like, I, I don't think that cuts it. Some people remember their last drink or their last drug. I don't. I can tell you with a straight face, I have no idea the last thing I used. Um, I remember days blending into weeks and weeks blending into months. I, I can remember just hoping that there were ways for me to be sober just on Christmas. I just wanted to spend Christmas with my family. And for the last three years, I couldn't do that. Um, and I know what that feels like. And I, I got an opportunity to work to help people understand that there's hope, that people can change. Um, I get opportunities to share my story a lot, and I never say no. Um, and one of the reasons I never say no is because I felt like for so many years I suffered in silence that today I get to kind of insist on recovering out loud. And I'm willing to recover out loud. It, it's um, uncomfortable for me to be real and to be vulnerable, um, to go on a podcast and cry and all of that. But if, if one person hears this and there's hope, it's all worth it. Like, that's enough. And so that's why I do it. Um, but that kind of takes, like, I kind of feel like I've just been talking forever. And I'm feeling bad about it. I'm, I'm sitting here with Shelly and Kurt, and I'm thinking, okay, at one point, they're either going to, like, grab some sort of cane and pull me off the stage or something's going to happen. So I can keep going, or if you guys have questions, well, you let me know. It's an incredible story, John, and... and can't interrupt a story like that and, and the thing that strikes me so so deeply is the emotion that's still there as you tell that story because I know you've told your story more times than you probably can count yeah. and, and in telling your story there's healing that happens there 
but you still connect with those very deep emotional pieces, which is, isn't always typical. Um, and I'm really curious, what do you feel? What is that emotion as you tell the story? Because I heard you say it's kind of part of your, your penance, right? It's kind of part of your, your recovery, but what are you feeling as you're telling that story? Um, an overwhelming sense of gratitude that sorry this is just emotional for me that, that I don't have to be that guy today that I was that guy for so many years I, I have this life today that is literally beyond my wildest dreams and I think it's a life that some people take for granted, but it's a life I never thought I would have. So I have, I have so much gratitude to be able to be a part of this world today. Um, and I have a lot of gratitude for what I get to do today, which is I get all these opportunities to try to help people. And I find that, um, you know, that. It, there's a lot of little cliches like you, you make your mess a message or you things along those lines. And for me, um, I just, I know there's hope. I know there's hope because I can feel it because I was the guy who was hopeless. I have another brother in recovery who works and runs a treatment center and he pulled me aside at, at the time and it was as I was losing all these jobs and his, my life just continued to fall apart. and. He was telling me that he was talking to another brother of mine and he said um, to this brother, he said, man, maybe, maybe this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back for John. And the other brother looked at him and just said, man, that, that camel's back is never going to break. And the people closest to me in my life honestly thought they would bury me that way. And today I get a chance to be a part of this world. And I've had... You know, it, it doesn't mean that my world's perfect. Um, in, in May of this year, um, my wife's little brother passed away. It, he wasn't even 40 yet. And he, um, he essentially drank himself to death. And he, um, I helped him get into a couple treatment centers, like it, and for some reason, for Charlie, it didn't take. And um, I don't know why I get to be so fortunate. I know I probably don't deserve it. It's not like I've earned this, but it's like through a lot of grace, I get a chance to be here today to hopefully carry a message. So very long answer, but that's what that's a lot of the emotion that comes up for me. And, and I hear the emotion almost tied around the relationships, right? The relationships yeah. that you have and the gratitude is around being able to show up for your family and your kids and those relationships when that was missing for such a huge part of your life. Yeah, well, and, and it's showing up for myself. Like my, so my twins were 14 when I got home from treatment and um, I only have one girl and three boys, and so the girl's one of the twins. And when I got home from treatment, my daughter, um, like I just hadn't been around. Like, and 
my daughter, like her, like what she called me was the douche. And I'm like, huh? So I pull Molly aside and I'm like, Molly, that's not appropriate. And then she goes, well, it just means jerk. So we went to Google and looked it up and she's like, ooh, dad, that's bad. And I said, yeah, Molly, that's, that's pretty bad. And so then she called me scadoosh. Like it was a way of just saying the same thing but kind of disguising it. Um, and I knew that I had to be consistent. I knew I had to continue to show up. I knew that um, they were trying to give me another chance, but I had to be good to what I told them I would do. Um, eventually I became John, and now I get to be Dad. So it's like the, the gratitude for the relationships is huge. I think it's, there's a lot of it's about relationships. Some people say the opposite of addiction is connection. And I, I believe that to some extent. I don't think that's the whole thing though. Um, and it's connection with people in your lives. It's connection to you, your authentic self. But it, for me, the, probably the greatest component to recovery is a spiritual connection. And I, th I had in my story just, I feel like my story articulates that to some extent in that I had all the book knowledge in the world. Like I knew what I was doing wrong. I, I could cognitively think it through and I think the disease of addiction and alcoholism it's kind of a disease of knowing better but not doing better. I had a tough time admitting I was an alcoholic because I knew better. I knew better. And, um, but the key that changed my experience was when I started seeking spiritual help. And I'm not defining that through a religious context for anybody, but I have this fundamental understanding and belief in my life that there is something so much bigger than us that we can tap into and we can get the help when we need it. And I don't really know how well I understand it. Like, I think my first sponsor was right. Like, John, you don't understand it at all. Um, and I don't know how well I do. I know that um, my it's not even a belief, it's something I know in my heart. Um, I don't know how well I understand God. But what I do know is that God understands me. And for me, that's all that matters. I, um, I have a huge God in my life today. I, huge. I, I think that, um, some people don't realize what a miracle it is for me to stay sober one day even. But I do. And I won't take that for granted today. Um, I had an interesting thing happen a couple months ago. I was working in a place, and I love this place. And I love the people there. Um, and it just ended up not being the right fit. And um, I got laid off and... Um, I remember calling my little brother, and this is the little brother that helped me get into treatment four years ago. Um, and it was the day that I got my four years sobriety. So I called my little brother to thank him for the, um, 
help four years ago, and I do it every year. I call them and I say, thank you. And then I explain to him what happened with work. And he said, congratulations. And I thought, well, okay, you know, it's been four years and I couldn't have done it without you, but man, the best four years. He said, not on that, you idiot. He said, congratulations on the job. He goes, congratulations on God moving you to where you couldn't move yourself. And I felt it and I knew it was true. And my life um, gets to take on new meaning. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that everything on the outside is perfect. It doesn't mean we're not going to lose family members. It doesn't mean that like jobs don't come and go. It doesn't mean that things don't come. But I have a way of walking through that with peace. All these things have happened, and the last thing that's come to mind for me, it hasn't actually even come to mind, is getting higher, getting drunk. Like, like some of the listeners may not know how miraculous that is, but I do. Waking up used to be enough of a reason. Where now life can be life. And I get to walk through it. I love your story. I can sit here and listen to you all day. <clears throat> because you have so much passion around your story. I'm curious, has your wife ever done a podcast with you? She, this, no. And, and she won't. <laughs> <laughs> we, but my wife is amazing. Um, she, I... Pe- people ask why we're still married, and um, I've got an easy answer to that I'm... I married someone better than I am. But this is not, this would make her so uncomfortable if she ever gets asked to speak in church. She doesn't even sleep for a week. Mm-hmm. Like this kind of thing. And for me, I, I was thinking last night how to prepare her um, to come and do the podcast. And then I realized there's nothing to prepare. Like I wake up in the morning and I do, I like I told you, I do the same thing every morning. So I, I remember talking to um, someone who was helping me in the program and I was having this really stressful day and I was 60 days sober. And um, again, same guy who said, man, take your higher power with you. And I said, oh, I had a busy day this morning, man. I I forgot to even pray. And he said, well, he goes, let me give you a good rule of thumb. He said, "Um, try to spend 20 or 30 minutes in prayer and meditation when you wake up. He said, but unless you're having a busy day. And I thought, okay, here's my out. And he said, if you're having a busy day, spend an hour. And that's what I do today. I don't, I don't miss that. Um, so this morning I got up and I didn't know what I was going to say, but I, I figured that if I came and I tried to bring my higher power with me, that whatever needed to be said would be said. You're not a morning person, so how do you do that in the morning? Oh, well, so it's an interesting thing. So this is the whole one day at a time. I actually have a bracelet that says, like, one day at a time on it. This is, I used to spend so much time at night calculating how much sleep I would get or not get um, to determine when I had to wake up, to already know how tired I was going to be the next day. And then I... 
I, I think normal people think this way, but it, this thought didn't dawn on me that, John, you have no idea if you're going to be tired tomorrow. You're not in tomorrow yet. So now I know that whatever I'm doing in a day, I just make sure I set my alarm early to do it. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter if I have to be somewhere at 7 a.m. I still build in a minimum of 30 minutes for our meditation. Because the other thing that I've realized is that when I go through a day calmer and I'm not part of the emotional ups and downs of the day, if I can just walk through it with a level of peace, that I have a tendency not to get so tired. So I, I believe the disease is a disease of body, mind, and spirit. And so I exercise the body and I eat healthy. I run a couple days a week and that's something I started doing during COVID. Like that's where COVID helped me. Um, I read and I I try to expand the mind, but I I they say body, mind, and spirit. I think it's spirit, body, mind. Like I, the spiritual connection is the most important aspect of it for me. So when I do that, I'm able to be a morning person. I'm able because usually the mornings were the worst part because I'd start thinking about everything that was coming. Where now I just realize that you know what the day's gonna. The day's going to be the day, and I just take it as it comes. So what do you do during that period? Are you reading? Yeah, I have, I have three or four like daily meditations that I go through in the morning. Um, I generally make the bed. Like I, I think my wife's probably made the bed like three times since I've been sober in the past four years and a couple months. Like I, I make the bed. Um, because I like to, because I get to. And so I make the bed and I hit my knees. I ask for help. Um, sometimes it's just sitting quietly. Sometimes I've got some um, some things that I'll say or, you know, things that I read. But what, what it is, so let me tell you the significance of it for me, if I can, is that I used to wake up in the morning and sometimes I'd wake up and it would be like, the moment I wake up, it's like my head's already chewing on me. And my head's just sitting there at the end of the bed saying, okay, John, glad you're awake. We've been talking about you for hours. You're not going to make it today. It's going to be rough. And that, that used to be the way that I would wake up. And suddenly I'd just be going. And so the things that I read and what I do, it's more to get me refocused, to, to take me out of that headspace, which is, you know, my default, um, and to put me someplace else so I can connect better. And then I connect better and I try to set the tone for the day. And the most, here's one of the beautiful things that I learned in recovery. I get the opportunity to set my day over any time. So say I do this and by 10.30 a.m. it is spun out. Um, I, I've got some things on my phone that I'll read or different things and I just, I reconnect, I slow it all down and I start over and I ask for help. Sometimes I have to do that a couple times a day, which is okay. But that's, that's kind of how I do it. So all of that might be the answer to this question, but you mentioned you started out as a teen with maybe some like undiagnosed anxiety or whatever. No. You feel like you still have that. Is oh, that, yeah. Is that separate from what you're talking about, or is that what you're talking about, and how do you kind of course correct on that? Well, I'm, I'm a guy who has a tendency to... Uh, some people... 
I'm somebody who used to get crippled by anxiety. And if you've ever been crippled by anxiety, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and it's not that I'm no longer anxious. And it's not that I don't have fear. Like coming in here and sharing my story to who knows is going to hear it is a scary thing for me. But what I've learned in recovery is that, and again, this a lot of this goes back to that spiritu spirituality, is that there's a part in the big book on page 68 that says that, you know, just the extent that we do as we, we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So it's not that calamity goes away. It's not that the anxiety goes away. But what happens is I just meet it with an increased level of peace. And as I do that, as I tap into that, um, I walk through the fear. And then once I've walked through it, suddenly the fear no longer holds the power. And, and I get to go to the other side of it. And after you've done this a lot, or at least enough times, you realize that the fear doesn't have as much control. But it's still there and it's still real. <laughs> so, and I don't know if that answers the question, but that's kind of the way I, I try to approach it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, I mean, I think that's something that everybody deals with in some circumstances. Right, so I don't think everybody has anxiety every day, but I think everybody can rec can can relate to those times when you'd have anxiety. Yeah, right? you should have anxiety before a job interview or a public speech or something that's an intense moment. Yeah, right? something like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think that tool that tool is powerful, right? Of being able to say like I can meet that with my own understanding of how to. To bring my own peace. Right? Yeah. I think that's powerful. John, this has been an absolute pleasure. I would love to have you come and be on the podcast again. Because yeah. I think you could go on with more story because um, you have, you've lived so much life, right? And you have so much passion and you've connected with so many people. So I just want to thank you for coming and sharing well, your story and being so vulnerable. Thank you for having me. I would, I would love to come back. Let's invite your wife to lunch. And not tell her that she's on a podcast. Okay. And we'll just record the whole thing. Good luck with that. <laughs> assuming that I'm she the one married to her. I love you, honey. I'm not going to set you up. Assuming she doesn't hear this part. <laughs> That's the honesty piece. You couldn't do it. Yeah, I can't do it today. Well, actually, so my wife will tell you that I'm not very honest. This, this, and I only have one aspect of my life that I still struggle with honesty on. And it's the law. Wife will say, "Did you mow?" Sure. Like, and I don't know why. Like, is that one aspect in my life? Is the lawn getting watered tonight? You betcha. When I have no idea, but it, but beyond that, it's pretty easy. But I'm not a yard work guy. Still don't like it. It's so um, there's always room for progress, right? Mm -hmm. That's, awesome. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Well, thanks for everything you do. Yeah, thanks in the for industry. Me. You've been a fun friend to have. So that feeling's mutual. Feeling's mutual, brother.